the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hi, it's Hugh Hewitt. Welcome to the interview with Hugh Hewitt, sponsored by AndrewandTodd.com. Andrew and Todd are with Sierra Pacific Mortgage. They help you with all your real estate lending needs. If you're refinancing your home, if you're buying a new home, if you're a senior who wants a reverse mortgage, if you're a veteran who doesn't want to put any money down, whatever it is, if you're in the private real estate market for yourself, and maybe you want an investment property, try AndrewandTodd.com or call 888-888-1172. Now on to the interview with Hugh Hewitt. Morning, Glory America. This is Hugh Hewitt, the voice of reason in the West, bringing you the special 4th of July edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show. My guest, Professor Harry Jaffa, has been my guest for the past two hours. And in coming up, we are going to discuss with Professor Jaffa just how far we have removed from the original understanding of the Declaration of Independence. But we would be remiss if we did not begin this hour as we began the other two with, in fact, a reading of this the Declaration of Independence. In Congress, July 4, 1776, the unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundations on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence, indeed, will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And accordingly, all experience has shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations, pursuing invariably the same object, evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty, to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies, and such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government. The history of the present King of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. He has refused his assent to laws, the most wholesome and necessary for the public good. He has forbidden his governors to pass laws of immediate and pressing importance, unless suspended in their operation till his assent should be obtained. And when so suspended, he has utterly neglected to attend to them. He has refused to pass other laws for the accommodation of large districts of people, unless those people would relinquish the right of representation in the legislature, 
a right inestimable to them and formidable to tyrants only. He has called together legislative bodies at places unusual, uncomfortable, and distant from the depository of their public records for the sole purpose of fatiguing them into compliance with his measures. He has dissolved representative houses repeatedly for opposing with manly firmness his invasions on the rights of the people. He has refused for a long time after such dissolutions to cause others be elected, whereby the legislative powers incapable of annihilation have returned to the people at large for their exercise, the state remaining in the meantime exposed to all the dangers of invasion from without and convulsions within. He has endeavored to prevent the population of these states for that purpose, obstructing the laws of naturalization of foreigners, refusing to pass others to encourage their migrations hither, and raising the condition of new appropriations of lands. He has obstructed the administration of justice by refusing his assent to laws for establishing judiciary powers. He has made judges dependent on his will alone for the tenure of their offices and the amount and payment of their salaries. He has erected a multitude of new offices and sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people and eat out their substance. He has kept among us in times of peace standing armies without the consent of our legislatures. He has effected to render the military independent of and superior to the civil power. He has combined with others to subject us to a jurisdiction foreign to our Constitution and unacknowledged by our laws, giving his assent to their acts of pretended legislation, for quartering large bodies of armed troops upon us, for protecting them by mock trial from punishment for any murders which they should commit on the inhabitants of these states, for cutting off our trade with all parts of the world, for imposing taxes on us without our consent, for depriving us in many cases of the benefits of trial by jury, for transporting us beyond seas to be tried for pretended offenses, for abolishing the free system of laws in a neighboring province, establish them in an arbitrary government, and enlarging its boundaries so as to render it at once an example and fit instrument for introducing the same absolute rule into these colonies, for taking away our charters, abolishing our most valuable laws, and altering fundamentally the forms of our governments, for suspending our own legislatures and declaring themselves instead invested with power to legislate for us in all cases whatsoever. He has abdicated government here by declaring us out of his protection and waging war against us. He has plundered our seas, ravaged our coasts, burnt down our towns, and destroyed the lives of our people. He is at this time transporting large armies of foreign mercenaries to complete the works of death, desolation, and tyranny, already begun with circumstances of cruelty and perfidy scarcely paralleled in the most barbarous ages, and totally unworthy the head of a civilized nation. He has constrained our fellow citizens taken captive on high seas to bear arms against their country, to become the executioners of their friends and brethren, or to fall themselves by their hands. He has excited domestic insurrections among us and has endeavored to bring out the inhabitants of our frontiers, the merciless, Indian, the merciless Indian savages, whose known rule of warfare is undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. In every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. A prince whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. Nor have we been wanting in our attentions to our British brethren. We have warned them from time to time of attempts by their legislature to extend an unwarrantable jurisdiction over us. We have reminded them of the circumstances of our emigration and settlement here. We have appealed to their native justice and magnanimity, and we have conjured them by the ties of our common kindred to disavow the use, these usurpations, which would inevitably interrupt our connections and correspondence. They, too, have been deaf to the voice of justice and consanguinity. We must, therefore, acquiesce in the necessity which denounces our separation and holds them as we hold the rest of the mankind, 
enemies in war, in peace, friends. We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America in general Congress assembled, appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, do, in the name and by the authority of the good people of these colonies, solemnly punish, solemnly publish, and declare that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved, and that as free and independent states, they have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and do all other acts and things which independent states may have right do. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. And there follow 56 signatures on the Declaration of Independence, which we celebrate today. Professor Jaffa, the Declaration of Independence is beautiful to hear, wonderful to read. It's lengthy. It's got all those indictments against George III. Does it mean anything today? Has it been put on the shelf and we just open it up for fun? Well, when the, on the occasion of the Bicentennial in 1976, uh, the tall ships sailed into New York Harbor. Uh, they made a beautiful display of the age of sail. And I said then, these beautiful ships were like the Declaration of Independence, as, a, as a, beautiful but impractical and irrelevant. That's the status. Now, I might illustrate what I mean by mentioning the, the one premier book by an American scholar on the Declaration of Independence is Carl Becker's book entitled the Declaration of Independence, published in 1922. Uh, in the course of that book, and it's a beautiful book, beautifully written, uh, and explains in a fairly coherent way the, the sources of the Declaration, what it meant to the formerly British politicians in the latter 18th century, the theory of the British Empire. In the last chapter, he asks, he says, to ask whether the uh, the philosophy of the Declaration of Independence is true or false is essentially a meaningless question. That judgment of Carl Becker's has never been challenged or refuted until my work. All civil law historians have functioned within that framework. Uh, now, to, if if the principles of the Declaration are irrelevant and to ask the question whether slavery is just or unjust is irrelevant. Uh, to ask whether the government of the United States is a legitimate government, more legitimate than other forms of government, is a meaningless question. So uh, then you have to ask, why did a man like Carl Becker say such a thing? Well, ho hold that thought. We're going to go to a break. When we come back, I want to know, what did Carl Becker mean? I mean, genuinely true to his intention. What did he mean, and why was he wrong in your estimate when we return? It's a question that has roiled American judicial theory and philosophy for many years. So don't go anywhere, America. You're listening to the very best in intelligent political talk. With my guest, Harry Jaffa, this is The Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt on this special 4th of July edition of The Hugh Hewitt Show. My guest, Professor Harry Jaffa, one of the country's preeminent political philosophers. When four score and a few years ago, Carl Becker declared the Declaration of Independence to be irrelevant, Professor Jaffa, what did he mean, and why do you think he was wrong? Well, Becker was a, a very intelligent college professor, 
but like most college professors, he was not very well educated. Uh, he sort of inherited a tradition of political philosophy, which really began with Rousseau, in a sense culminated not only in Hegel but in Darwin. Uh, he, he belonged to the what I'd call the the uh, evolutionary enlightenment, which thought that the idea of evolution had solved all questions, uh, political questions, by showing them to be rooted in history and to evolve. Uh, and he also accepted the idea of progress, the belief that the course of evolution was was beginning with the subhuman and rising through the humans to the, to the superhuman. Uh, in any case, he saw evolution as as unifying the social sciences and the natural sciences, and that represented progress. Among the other people who believed this simply implicitly was the, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, about whom there's a recent biography. And uh, uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes, his convictions were summed up in his say, saying that human life had no more intrinsic significance than a grain of sand. Uh, now, Becker was a, a decent man with decent instincts, and the second edition of the, uh, or the next edition of the Declaration of Independence was published in 1942, at a moment when Hitler's victory, impending victory over the Soviet Union, was, seemed to be impending, and he thought Hitler was going to war, win, win the war. He called upon you know, his fellow man to rally behind the principles of the Declaration of Independence. That he had previously rendered irrelevant. Right. <laughs> A little irony there. Yes. Now, why was he wrong? Why did it remain relevant in your opinion? Well, uh, let me say that the whole thesis that Becker incorporated and the philosophic basis for it, I have examined and refuted in pitiless detail in the second chapter of A New Birth of Freedom, which 100 pages or more I can't reproduce in the seconds I have now. But let me just say that he assumed without any argument that history had replaced nature as the basis for moral judgment. This was a faith which Woodrow Wilson inherited, Theodore Roosevelt inherited, and not to mention last and certainly not least Franklin D. Roosevelt inherited, uh, that the that the Declaration was simply, and the Constitution were be, to be interpreted in the light of an evolving truth, which deeply, which they had, but which the founding fathers did not have. And that is widespread, though, isn't Let it? Let me I mean, show you how widespread it is. I will now quote somebody who would be recognized as an authority in American life, who said that if a people adopts a Constitution with safeguards for individual liberty— these do indeed take on a certain moral rightness or goodness. They do so neither because of any intrinsic worth or any idea of natural justice, but solely because they have been adopted by a people. This statement is taken, this is the constitutional jurisprudence of William Rehnquist, Chief Justice of the United States today. Now he, you ask, why did, remember that safeguards of individual liberty do not have any intrinsic worth. He's a disciple of Oliver Wendell Holmes. That means individual liberty has no intrinsic worth. This means that individual life has no intrinsic worth. Is there any How difference? This is, compare this with the statement that individuals are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, which means with a moral law rooted in nature. Nature is completely rejected. Only the 
Only the historical uh, actions of historical people have any basis in them for, for, for political authority. Is there any difference then, ultimately, between the jurisprudence of a William Rehnquist and a John Paul Stevens or a David Souter, in your view? No difference between that and Napoleon. Which is? The authority of the people, the plebiscite, majority rule. And uh, uh, somebody else, another person who I'll identify said that the majority rule is the whole theory of democracy. Uh, the minority only have those rights which the majority choose to give them. If a people wants to have abortion, they have a right to it. If they want not to have abortion, they have a right not to have it. And you can substitute abortion for slavery uh, or slavery for abortion and you're right back to Stephen A. Douglas. And who said this? Uh, uh, Antonin Scalia, our most conservative justice. So where do they lose their way, Harry Jeff? Well, they were indoctrinated in, in our – William Rehnquist never he, – he believes that, that all moral judgments are value judgments. And a value judgment is by definition a judgment which has no foundation in reason. Well, surely Justice Scalia is not, uh, is not an actor of the sort to carry out his, his commitment to Catholicism. Surely he believes in a transcendent moral purpose and a, and a law-giving God. So yeah. there must be something yeah, – so, so does Teddy Kennedy. But surely... <laughs> They're both Catholics. No, I don't know that Teddy Kennedy accepts the, the authority of the church, and I believe Justice Scalia does. Don't you? No. No! He could never say that, that a people have a right to have abortion if he believed that. That's true enough. That's true enough. When we, now, let's, let, as opposed to assaulting Scalia, though, let's assault the left. There might not be much different in your view, but let's do that. I want to reclaim the declaration from the... Liberals. The liberals love the Declaration of Independence. The American Civil Liberties Union rallies around the Declaration of Independence as their demand for rights for this group and that group. Where have they gone wrong in any way different than the way Scalia and Rehnquist have gone wrong in your view? No difference. The same. Just all about votes. No. It's, it's the fact that they believe that the, the tradition of Western philosophy from Rousseau to, to say Kant and Hegel and then to Nietzsche and Heidegger has shown that there is no basis in, in nature, no basis in either God or nature for the distinction between right and wrong, that, that all moral ideas are formed within time and, are, and they have no greater permanence or validity than the time in which they were formed. So in 100 years, Professor, what do you expect to have happened to this republic? Well, uh, Leo Strauss in Natural Light and History speaking of the Second World War, said that what was happening now, meaning this was in 1949, uh, right after World War II, was, would not be the first time that a nation defeated on the field of battle had deprived the victor of the sublimest fruits of victory by imposing on him the yoke of its own thought. Uh, now, what, what Strauss was referring to was the nihilism of Heidegger. But the same process began immediately after the Civil War. Uh, I'd say Lincoln represents the last time that the principles of the Declaration held a, a respected and authoritative status in American life. When we come back from break, Professor, I'll ask you to expand on that. That's a very, uh, very profound observation and one of the implications of which I'd want to uh, trace a little bit more for our audience. On this special edition 
of the 4th of July show that is the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. This is Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening on this 4th of July, and a happy 4th of July to all of you. If you're in your cars and driving somewhere to celebrate, keep in mind this is the birthday of the country in which we live and for which we are grateful. It was once involved at the precipice of destruction, the Civil War, and in the middle of that there came the great leadership of Abraham Lincoln, Relying upon the Declaration of Independence, he went to dedicate a war memorial, a cemetery at Gettysburg. Those words reinvigorated the commitment to the Declaration, and they are thus. Fourscore and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that the nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us the living, rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave their last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. That, of course, the great declaration of principle by Abraham Lincoln at Gettysburg Cemetery in November of 1863, the battle he commemorated having been fought on July 4th of 1863, actually, uh, for three days during that period. My guest, Harry Jaffa, a great student of that address and of Lincoln as well, uh, Professor Jaffa, in the last segment, you referenced someone who I think we need to place in, in context for our audience. Who was Leo Strauss? Uh, well, I, I've been sometimes asked, who, are the greatest men, who was the greatest man of the 20th century? And I sometimes uh, or often or will answer, the, greatest, the two greatest men were Winston Churchill and Leo Strauss. Winston Churchill, known throughout the world, Leo Strauss known almost nowhere. But what Churchill was to Hitler, Leo Strauss was to Martin Heidegger, the philosopher of National Socialism. And I add to this the fact that Churchill seems to have, his victory over Hitler seems to be complete. Uh, Third Reich was destroyed, Hitler committed suicide, and the world has seen at least something of freedom as it would not have had Hitler won the war. Uh, Strauss has not been victorious. He's been victorious over Heidegger in terms that he has, he has provided the, the reasons, the philosophic understanding, which has within itself the power of defeating Heidegger's doctrines, you see. But Heidegger is enormously popular. And, uh, the reason that, that Scalia and Rehnquist believe these things are because that what Heidegger's influence uh, or you might say pre-Heideggerian influence of, of Nietzsche and uh, uh, 
was the I'm trying to think of the name of the Carl uh, Max Faber. I'm reaching back here, but in the preface of City and Man, Strauss says the West will never be in a crisis unless it loses um, view of what its central principles are. Right. In your view, is the West now in a crisis because it's lost central uh, that, that that view of that central purpose? Profound crisis. Uh, it's shown on the campuses that, that there is no. Uh, what is the what is the ultimate human good as defined by philosophy professors on our campuses today? A very popular expression of this that is that the highest human good is the emancipation of the uninhibited self. Emancipation. Well, the greatest example of an, of an emancipated self that I can think of is Adolf Hitler. He did exactly what he wanted. Uh, every man would like to be a tyrant, you see. Uh, so the the idea that the emancipation of the uninhibited self is, this is the human freedom is defined without any regard to any objective moral principles, whatever. This is the dominant opinion on our campuses today. This is the opinion that underlies what is called political correctness. And it is the opinion we will continue to discuss after this break as we continue with this, the special 4th of July edition of The Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. This is Hugh Hewitt on this special edition of The Hugh Hewitt Show that celebrates the 4th of July. In the second paragraph of the Declaration of Independence, it begins, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Perhaps nothing is as poorly understood in this declaration as that phrase, the pursuit of happiness. Professor Harry Jaffa of the Claremont Institute for Statesmanship, what does that mean, the pursuit of happiness? Well, the articulation of the meaning of the word happiness uh, for the Western tradition for more than 2,000 years has been that given by Aristotle in the, in the Nicomachean Ethics. <clears throat> and the word in Greek that is usually translated as eudaimonia, which means to have a good daimon. Uh, another word is, is makarios, which refers to wealth. Uh, but uh, the meaning that the word has for Aristotle is defined by Aristotle himself. It is that good for the sake of which all other good things are sought. Uh, happiness does not, Aristotle says, consist in wealth, because wealth is an instrument. Having wealth uh, is good for the things that you can do with the wealth, and the question is, what can you do with the wealth? Uh, happiness is not good simply for the sake of honor. Why? Because honor depends upon the character of those who give the honor, as well as in other words, to be admired and honored by, by stupid or vicious men does not mean that the honor is worth anything. Uh, Stalin, for example, used to have these parades throughout the Soviet Union with praising him and with banners, and, and, and he would look at the parades and, and think that, gee, what a great man am I. Of course, he ordered the, the parades himself. When Churchill was honored by the, by the parliament, it was by a parliament which had already rejected him as its leader. But the, the tributes of free men, freely given for honorable deeds, mean something. But honor itself is a questionable good. Well, Aristotle's final conclusion is that 
and this, of course, needs to be art- is articulated throughout the Ten Books of the Nicomachean Ethics, that, uh, that happiness is an, is an activity of virtue in a complete life. An activity of virtue in a complete life. Yes. Now, now let's flash forward 1,800 years or more. In his inaugural address, George Washington said that there is no truth more, more firmly uh, established in the entire economy of nature than the indissoluble union of virtue and happiness. Aristotle himself couldn't have given a better concise definition of happiness. Give it again, please, Professor. There is no more indissoluble union. What did I say? Uh, No no more demonstrable truth, I think. Okay. Than than the... Uh, in the, he said in the entire economy, of course, the word is used in its classical sense of law, uh, an economy of nature, in other words, in the, in the whole idea of human nature, than the indissoluble union of virtue and happiness. For Washington, the pursuit of happiness and the pursuit of virtue are one and the same. Okay, and define for our audience what virtue is. Yeah. Well, virtue. <laughs> uh, Aristotle goes through the entire list of a list of virtues, beginning with courage, uh, and going on to temperance, and then on to uh, magnanimity, and then into justice, and finally into happiness, uh, into friendship. Uh, uh, virtue is an activity uh, in accordance with right reason, with respect to the different occasions in which human beings make judgments of right and wrong in order to be able to act well. Uh, for example, courage is an activity of acting well in the presence of danger. And to neither be not to run forward into danger needlessly nor run away from it in a cowardly manner. Uh, temperance is the right act, the, the mean between excess and, and def- uh, deficiency with respect to the pleasures of taste and touch. So does it mean to be able to pursue happiness, as the Declaration guarantees, to be able to pursue virtue, mm. as understood as the mean that Aristotle lays out? Well, I'd say yes, but but this, this has got to be uh, Aristotle's schematic account, which I think is the most perfect account that's ever been given. But it still needs to be supplemented by the by the study of history. Uh, and the study of theology? I say history. I'm just wondering. No, no, let me, let I, me, let me, uh, history in this sense, that, uh, that history, the highest function of history itself uh, is philosophy teaching by example. See, uh, Lincoln, for example, at the end of the, his 1862 message to Congress says, gentlemen of the Congress, we cannot escape history. The fiery trial through which we pass Will, will light us down in honor or dishonor to the latest generation. We shall nobly save or meanly lose the last best hope of earth. This is a supreme example of Lincoln telling people to act virtuously, but which the last, also honorably. The last sweeping rhetorical testament of Lincoln is the second inaugural, which we've already talked about today. And therein he turns people back to the ultimate authority, which is Scripture, Correct. Mm-hmm. Yes, but yes and no. 
I have to say, because he said both sides read the same Bible and pray to the same God. It may seem strange that any man should ask a, a just God to eat his bread in the sweat of other men's faces. But let us judge not, lest we be judged. Of course, he's already judged. The interpretation of the Bible depends upon having rational principles applied to the interpretation of the Bible itself. Absolutely true. But when we come back for our last comment, I'll ask you this. If one has the right principles to apply, then the place they ought to be applied most assiduously, would that be in the Bible? Correct? Hold that thought. We'll be right back. 1-800-520-1234 is the number you cannot use today. Because we're concluding our third hour of this, the very special edition of The Hugh Hewitt Show. The Beauty of the Lilies, Professor, we end our time together on this, the special edition for the 4th of July of The Hugh Hewitt Show. Uh, we got about two minutes, uh, Professor Harry Jaffa, on which there are so many points you wish to make, and, and, and um, we always run out of time. How would you summarize what we've been talking about today, the importance of Lincoln, the importance of the Second Inaugural, and the importance of the Declaration in American uh, continuing unfolding history? Well, I think the Constitution of the United States can never be whole when the people who are called upon to interpret it think that it's the result simply of majority rule, which is what William Rehnquist, Robert Bork, Antonin Scalia the, uh, uh, believe. Uh, now, I think there's one justice of the Supreme Court who's, who recognizes the authority of the principles of the Declaration, but he's the only one, and that's Clarence Thomas. Uh, but we have to ask ourselves, why are these, no, these why is this great history and, and these great documents with profound truth, why are they neglected today? Why are they not even taken uh, into consideration uh, in trying to decide what are the what is the foundation of our rights, and hence, what are those rights themselves? Uh, and the answer is because it is believed that history has replaced nature. Evolution is a, is a much superior way of understanding the meaning of human nature. And, of course, human nature, as seen simply through the idea of evolution, is a purposeless thing that has arisen from nowhere and has a direction which uh, is... To, uh, owes nothing whatever to to human reason uh, unless the but the truth of the matter is that this rejection of the declaration and its principles is based upon false doctrines, and these false doctrines have got to be refuted, and the people who are the who are the guardians are supposed to be the guardians of our of our heritage uh, and who are the greatest enemies of the heritage. They're, they dominate the universities today. Uh, and uh, you can see even, in, say, great corporations today uh, hire these sensitivity trainers, which in that way they pay off Jesse Jackson, who, gets, who, who I think uh, gets a cut of the, of the, of the fees that they... Uh, More great subjects for another day. I want to close with a simple question, Professor Harry Jaffa. Are you an optimist about the course of the Republic or a pessimist? Um, well, uh, I'm neither one nor the other. <laughs> that is to say, uh, I believe that there is ground for optimism, but I think that there's also ground for pessimism. Which way the fight will go uh, depends in part whether or not the kind of ideas which I've resurrected in my books can, uh, can uh, command an audience. Let me just, I want to say one more thing. I, unfortunately, no. Professor, we've got no. five seconds. Uh, well, 
Calvin Coolidge gave a great speech on the Declaration of Independence in 1926. Nobody reads it today except people at the Claremont Institute. The fight will go on again tomorrow at this spot, including that speech. Thanks for listening to this special 4th of July edition. Thank you, Harry Jaffa of the Hugh Hewitt Show. Morning, Glory America. This is Hugh Hewitt on the 4th of July. Thank you for joining us in this, the second hour of a special 4th of July broadcast. My guest, as he was, first hour, Professor Harry Jaffa. He is the Henry Salvatore Research Professor of Political Philosophy Emeritus at Claremont McKenna College in the Claremont Graduate School. And he's a distinguished fellow of the Claremont Institute for the Study of Statesmanship and Political Philosophy. You can order his books, and they are very much deserving of your attention at www.claremont.org. That's spelled C-L-A-R-E-M-O-N-T dot org, www.claremont.org. And we will continue our conversation about Jefferson, Lincoln, the Declaration of Independence, and the Rebirth of Freedom, as well as how far we have moved from those principles. But given that it is the 4th of July, we begin every hour on the Hugh Hewitt Show on the 4th of July with a reading of the Declaration of Independence. And here now is that Declaration of Independence. In Congress, July 4, 1776, the unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter to abolish it, and to institute new government, laying its foundations on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence, indeed, will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And accordingly, all experience has shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations, pursuing invariably the same object, evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty, to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies, and such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government. The history of the present King of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. He has refused his assent to laws, the most wholesome and necessary for the public good. He has forbidden his governors to pass laws of immediate and pressing importance, unless suspended in their operation till his assent should be obtained. And when so subs- suspended, he has utterly neglected to attend to them. He has refused to pass other laws for the accommodation of large districts of people, unless those people would relinquish the right of representation in the legislature, a right inestimable to them and formidable to tyrants only. He has called together legislative bodies at places unusual, uncomfortable, and distant from the depository of their public records, for the sole purpose of fatiguing them into compliance with his measures. 
He has dissolved representative houses repeatedly for opposing with manly firmness his invasions on the rights of the people. He has refused for a long time after such dissolutions to cause others be elected, whereby the legislative powers incapable of annihilation have returned to the people at large for their exercise, the state remaining in the meantime exposed to all the dangers of invasion from without and convulsions within. He has endeavored to prevent the population of these states for that purpose obstructing the laws of naturalization of foreigners, refusing to pass others to encourage their migrations hither, and raising the condition of new appropriations of lands. He has obstructed the administration of justice by refusing his assent to laws for establishing judiciary powers. He has made judges dependent on his will alone for the tenure of their offices and the amount and payment of their salaries. He has erected a multitude of new offices and sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people and eat out their substance. He has kept among us in times of peace standing armies without the consent of our legislatures. He has effected to render the military independent of and superior to the civil power. He has combined with others to subject us to a jurisdiction foreign to our Constitution and unacknowledged by our laws, giving his assent to their acts of pretended legislation, for quartering large bodies of armed troops upon us, for protecting them by mock trial from punishment for any murders which they should commit on the inhabitants of these states, for cutting off our trade with all parts of the world, for imposing taxes on us without our consent, for depriving us in many cases of the benefits of trial by jury, for transporting us beyond seas to be tried for pretended offenses, for abolishing the free system of laws in a neighboring province, establish them in an arbitrary government, and enlarging its boundaries so as to render it at once an example and fit instrument for introducing the same absolute rule into these colonies, for taking away our charters, abolishing our most valuable laws, and altering fundamentally the forms of our governments, for suspending our own legislatures and declaring themselves instead invested with power to legislate for us in all cases whatsoever. He has abdicated government here by declaring us out of his protection and waging war against us. He has plundered our seas, ravaged our coasts, burnt down our towns, and destroyed the lives of our people. He is at this time transporting large armies of foreign mercenaries to complete the works of death, desolation, and tyranny, already begun with circumstances of cruelty and perfidy scarcely paralleled in the most barbarous ages, and totally unworthy the head of a civilized nation. He has constrained our fellow citizens taken captive on high seas to bear arms against their country, to become the executioners of their friends and brethren, or to fall themselves by their hands. He has excited domestic insurrections among us and has endeavored to bring out the inhabitants of our frontiers, the merciless, Indian, the merciless Indian savages, whose known rule of warfare is undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. In every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. A prince whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. Nor have we been wanting in our attentions to our British brethren. We have warned them from time to time of attempts by their legislature to extend an unwarrantable jurisdiction over us. We have reminded them of the circumstances of our emigration and settlement here. We have appealed to their native justice and magnanimity, and we have conjured them by the ties of our common kindred to disavow the use, these usurpations, which would inevitably interrupt our connections and correspondence. They, too, have been deaf to the voice of justice and consanguinity. We must, therefore, acquiesce in the necessity which denounces our separation and holds them as we hold the rest of the mankind, enemies in war, in peace, friends. We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America in General Congress assembled, appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, do, 
in the name and by the authority of the good people of these colonies, solemnly punish, solemnly publish, and declare that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved, and that as free and independent states, they have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and do all other acts and things which independent states may have right do. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. And there follow 56 signatures on the Declaration of Independence, which we celebrate today. Professor Harry Jaffa, the Declaration of Independence rolled off the pen of Jefferson and his fellow laborers in Philadelphia, but it did not come from nowhere. It came from a tradition of political theory. Where, where are the, the origins of the Declaration? Well, Jefferson wrote a letter to Henry Lee in, I think, 1823, which is the most extensive exposition of what his intention was. He said it was not to find out any new ideas or invent anything new, but to present the common sense of the subject as it was found in letters, sermons, lectures, and the elementary books of public right, as, for example, Aristotle, Cicero, Locke, Sidney, etc. Aristotle, Cicero, Locke. Let's start with those three. What did Aristotle say that he bequeathed to the framers in Philadelphia? Well, I think that the idea of nature as the norm for human behavior, that clearly has its origins. What does nature as the norm mean? Well, when Jefferson wrote that all men are created equal, what he meant by that, explained in part at least, is there was no difference between man and man, let's say any human being and any other human being, as there was between man and dog, for example, or man and God. Uh, the authority that a human being has over horses or dogs or other animals comes from nature because of the difference in nature that makes man so superior to the inferior species that he has authority over them. There is no difference between human beings which makes one human being the master of that other human being because of a difference in nature. When we come back, we ask not just about Aristotle, but Cicero as well, when we return here on The Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, Americans. Hugh Hewitt, joined by Professor Harry Jaffa, author of, among other things, The Crisis of the House Divided and A New Birth of Freedom, both books available from the Claremont Institute. Its website, www.claremont.org. That's spelled C-L-A-R-E-M-O-N-T, claremont.org. Professor Jaffa, when we went to break, we were talking about Aristotle's contribution to the Declaration of Independence, which is that nature is the norm. You also mentioned Cicero. What would that contribution be? Well, uh, Cicero, Aristotle did not have any uh, explicit concept of natural law, meaning a law which was transnational or international, which governed people without respect to their membership in particular political societies. Cicero did. Cicero did in part because the Roman... Republic had conquered the ancient world and had created a kind of international municipal law through the power of the Roman legions. And so the Stoics thought of, of a law governing mankind independently of positive law. So, and Cicero's conception of, of natural law was developed greatly in the Christian West by Thomas Aquinas. 
uh, and from Thomas Aquinas it was passed on to Richard Hooker in the in the Laws of Ecclesiastical Polity, which formed the basis really for the theology of the Church of England. And then you come up, however, to, to John Locke. To John Locke, and what is his contribution to the soil from which the Declaration sprung? Well, the uh, in uh, in Aquinas and in Hooker, uh, the <clears throat> idea of the uh, of, of of authority proceeding from from kings or princes, uh, the idea that authority originated in the people and not in, in custom or in, or in just in the objective truth of laws. I mean, the, the Decalogue, for example, the prohibition against murder, theft, adultery. The Ten Commandments, yeah. Well, not all Ten Commandments. Okay. Keep going. The first, the first, the first uh, tablet has to do with our relationship to God. The second one, our relationship to each other. Although the fifth commandment is ambiguous. Uh, but uh, these things were recognized as being intrinsic to human, uh, to, to the welfare of human beings. Uh, no human society can. Uh, so these were prohibitions recognized everywhere. But that all law had its origins in the authority of the people, that was something new which was not in any for example, in any democratic idea before the American Revolution. Now, when Jefferson pens this, though, he does not explicitly link this, the natural law, to the people. He links it to the laws of nature and of nature's God. He does believe in God, does he not? Well, I can't imagine that he that he said it so many times without meaning it. And so is it really that the rights are in the nature of the people and the rights are in the nature of the creation put on earth? Well, when... Locke said that we are all property of God, therefore we can't be the property of each other, you see. Uh, the two things are perfectly compatible. Sure. The authority of God is, is superior to the authority of man, but among human beings, there is no human being who has authority directly from God. One of the more pernicious arguments that is around nowadays, though, is that the, the people who were in Philadelphia on July 4, 1776, and those who eventually framed the Constitution, did not believe in God and did not intend to legislate for a God-centered world. Is that pernicious or is it, in fact, objective? It's pernicious. Why? Well, all authority, human authority, uh, po political authority, arises from the people. But who is the people? What do we mean by the people? They mean human beings who have been endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. It is the fact that human beings have been endowed by God with their rights that makes the people the source of authority. Uh, but can that authority of the people be exercised in any way? I mean, could, could the people establish a Nazi regime or a communist regime? No, because... To do so would be inconsistent with the rights with which they have been endowed. Jefferson, on one occasion, spoke of uh, he was criticizing the Supreme Court for claiming the ultimate authority for interpreting the Constitution. He said the, the ultimate authority for the principles of the Constitution is the people en masse. They are independent of everything but moral law. In other words, the people is a people only insofar as it is a moral people incorporating the moral law. And it is, it is that incorporation of the moral law in the people themselves that makes the, the people the source of 
the legitimate source of political authority. I want to go backwards a bit here. For the benefit of our audience who don't often get the seminar with a political theorist of your sort, uh, you mentioned during the break that Napoleon, in fact, was a, almost a carrier of Jefferson's theory to continental Europe. How did that, you know, just explain that for people. I found it fascinating. Well, I didn't say Jefferson's theory. <laughs> well, <laughs> the, declara- the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen certainly has very many important resemblances with the American Declaration of Independence, but it also has some very important differences, which are, can be understood, I think, in the difference between Rousseau and Locke. The American founding is Lockean. The, uh, the revolutionary founding is is Rousseauan, and just because the authority of the people in Rousseau is is the uh, is the, arises from the from the what he called the general will. Uh, the, the general will is a very difficult thing to explain or, or to understand in the first place, but it is not a will based upon the individual rights of the people as human individuals, which is true in the Declaration of Independence. Uh, it is not the rights with which the people have been endowed by their creator. It's the rights with which which are discovered through the generalization of the will. But is there anything admirable in Napoleon? Well, uh, uh, as a Jew, I have to recognize the fact that he was the first person in European history to uh, 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 to uh, remove the disabilities of Jews in, in civil law. Well, that is significant. Anything else? Uh, well, he he uh, really instituted by abolishing feudal tenures. He brought into being uh, the uh, as the whole French Revolution did the rights of private property. So, is Napoleon, in your estimate, a theoretical cousin of Jefferson and his ilk in Philadelphia? Well, let, let me just tell us mention the fact that in Lincoln's Lyceum speech in 1838. Uh, he spoke about the, the the great dangers to republics, meaning, of course, the American republic. Then he said, "That comes from a, from from these people who are considered supermen, who belong to the tribe of the lion, the race of the lion, the tribe of the eagle." And he mentioned the four great destroyers of republics: Alexander, Caesar, uh, uh, who was the third? Alexander. Uh, Caesar and Napoleon. That says there's a fourth, which I. We got to go to break. When we come back from break, we'll find out who the fourth destroyer of republics is from Professor Jaffa. And we'll talk about the Gettysburg Address, which we are leading up to, and Lincoln's place in American history. Here on the special edition, the 4th of July edition of this, the very best in intelligent political and political theory talk, the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. This is Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening on this 4th of July, and a happy 4th of July to all of you. If you're in your cars and driving somewhere to celebrate, keep in mind this is the birthday of the country in which we live and for which we are grateful. It was once involved at the precipice of destruction, the Civil War, and in the middle of that there came the great leadership of Abraham Lincoln. Relying upon the Declaration of Independence, he went to dedicate a war memorial, a cemetery at Gettysburg. Those words reinvigorated the commitment to the Declaration, and they are thus. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, 
testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that the nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us, the living, rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave their last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. Welcome back, America. That was the Gettysburg Address. What you need to know about that address is that it's not just a commemoration of a great battle or an honoring of the war dead. It is very much a central document in American history and in American political theory. One of the people who have studied it longest is, of course, my guest, Professor Harry Jaffa. Right before I read the, the Gettysburg Address, Professor, we were talking about the three great destroyers of republics. That would be Caesar... Alexander and Napoleon. How did Lincoln seek to distinguish himself from Napoleon in the speech that you are referencing? Well, <clears throat> Lincoln was committed to the Constitution, uh, and he was committed to seeking political change only through constitutional means. The Constitution, the antebellum Constitution, meaning before the 13th Amendment, gave the federal government no authority over the domestic institutions of the individual states. And one plank in the Republican platform, which Lincoln repeated in his inaugural address, was that the preservation of the sovereignty of the states over their domestic institutions, this was essential to the perpetuity of our, of our political institutions. And the, now the abolitionists, or at least the extreme abolitionists, were ones who believed that any, any power that could be summoned to destroy slavery was justified. They thought that any time Lincoln or any president had the power to intervene to destroy slavery in the states, he should use it. Lincoln rejected that. And, and in rejecting the Napoleonic approach, he was rejecting the, the approach that the abolitionists were recommending. Uh, Lincoln insisted that that, that as president, uh, as a candidate for president and as president, he was seeking only such authority uh, as the, the Constitution conferred on the federal government. Now, and was minute, he? Now he, he was, that, all of that authority was concentrated on one question in the decade before the Civil War, and that was the question of the territories. And the only aim that the Republican Party had in 1860 in gaining the presidency, was to prevent the extension of slavery into the territories. Now, here's the now it was a common belief, uh, and I think generally accepted, and I think can be accepted by us, that if slavery stopped expanding, it would have to contract. It could not stand still. So Lincoln was confident that if the extension of slavery could be finally stopped, 
that slavery, that a process would be initiated, which would take place within the individual states, just as it had, just as the individual states had abolished slavery north of the Mason-Dixon line, after the between the Revolution and the Constitution, uh, so the process would be begun, which would lead to the emancipation of the slaves in the slave states themselves. Then, when we come back, Professor. I have to ask you, did he actually harbor a secret ambition to arrange the way that it turned out so that slavery would be destroyed, not gradually, but overnight? And therein, where was the power for the Emancipation Proclamation? When we return, as we study the key documents of the United States here on the 4th of July edition of this, The Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt on this, the 4th of July. Thanks for being with me, my special guest today, Professor Harry Jaffa. You can read his groundbreaking books. You can order them from the Claremont Institute, of which he is a distinguished fellow, www.claremont.org. That's spelled C-L-A-R-E-M-O-N-T. We're discussing the Declaration. We're talking about Lincoln, the Gettysburg Address, and about the saving of the Union. Did Lincoln harbor the secret ambition, Professor Jaffa, to eradicate slavery overnight? He just did not reveal it to the public, for to do so would to have been denied his ambition to become president. He certainly had no ambition to abolish slavery overnight because he didn't believe that that was, that that was a, a sound social policy. Insofar as he discussed the question at all, he always called for gradual compensated emancipation. And that's a pro- proposal that he made to the border states uh, in his December 1862 message to Congress, the message which preceded the final Emancipation Proclamation on January 1st, 1863. But <clears throat> the the... Lincoln once said during the debates with Douglas uh, that he had no more authority, uh, political authority, over uh, slavery in South Carolina than over the serfs in Russia. Uh, the federal government did not give, uh, the, did not possess any authority over the domestic and the relationship of husband and wife or master slave in any state. In, in Illinois, Lincoln had the, had, as a citizen of Illinois, he. He had the right to see that Illinois did did not uh, uh, permit slavery. Uh, and as a citizen of the United States, he had a right to see to it that the federal territories, which were the joint property of all the states, did not permit slavery. But the only political ambition he had with respect to slavery was to prevent its extension into the territories. Then where in now, his authority to issue the Emancipation Proclamation? If he had no authority over the serfs in Russia or the slaves in South yeah. Carolina, where did the Emancipation Proclamation come from? The Emancipation Proclamation, the authority for that came from his, uh, his position as commander-in-chief of the Army and the Navy and as uh, in the conduct of a war. This was the war powers of the president, which he, which he enjoyed under international law as well as under constitutional law because uh, the head of the state or the head of, a, of, a, of an army had the right to confiscate the property of the enemy in conducting a just war. Uh, and so Lincoln... Now, in the first year of the war, the, the, the Congress was passing uh, laws left and right to authorizing the confiscation of uh, of uh, enemy property, but Lincoln insisted that that power did not belong to the Congress; it belonged to him, as Commander in Chief, and he had the right to exercise that 
only insofar as he and his best judgment thought that it was necessary for the prosecution of the war. In other words, he couldn't do it just because he didn't like slavery. So the, uh, and the point was reached in the war in which Lincoln felt that, for example, he needed more, more soldiers. Remember, one of the consequences of the Emancipation Proclamation was that 180,000 Negro troops were enlisted in the Union Army. What happens to the blacks in the slave states, Professor, who are, who are the border states who do not go into the Confederacy at the time of the Emancipation Proclamation? The Emancipation Proclamation did not free the slaves of any loyal slaveholder. And so what happened to them? And did they remain slaves until the passage of the appropriate amendment? Really, legally they were until the 13th Amendment. But did that is that actually what happened in practice? Yes. Well, I mean, with the Lincoln tried to get the, the border slave states or any slave states that would, would, would recognize the authority of the, of the Constitution of the Union, uh, to uh, their slaves would not be emancipated. But Lincoln proposed a whole series of, actually a series of constitutional amendments which would authorize the federal government to pay states which, which adopt plans of compensated emancipation to indemnify them for the cost of the emancipation of their slaves. These, now, these laws were never adopted by the Congress. Lincoln was unable to get them to pass. But he warned this, the, the, the loyal slaveholders that they were going to lose their slaves. Anyway, the, the, the attrition of war, the action of war itself, was disintegrating the social basis of slavery. And it would be impossible for slaves leaving their masters to be captured and returned to them. One of the great arguments about Lincoln, of course, is that he's a tyrant who knew his limits, that he, in fact, in suspending habeas corpus and other actions throughout the war years, demonstrated everything you would find in a Caesar, everything you would find in a Napoleon, but with a sense of, of the limits to which he could push that. True or false? Well, false. The Constitution says that the writ of habeas corpus may not be suspended except in times of rebellion or invasion when the public safety may require it. Now, Nothing the, he did exceeded his appropriate power in the Constitution. No. Well, the, 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 one of the cases uh, decided long after he, uh, his, uh, I mean, 10 or years after was the Supreme Court decided that, that military courts which were, which were held uh, in areas be, behind the lines of war uh, where civil courts could have been functioning, that the, that the Lincoln's government had had unconstitutionally usurped the function of these civil courts. That was the uh, – now, I, I myself uh, think that that was a bad – it was a decision which the court would never have made in wartime. Well, like but Korematsu. They, in fact, uh, uh, I'm thinking right now – as we go into next hour, next hour, people ought to stay tuned because we're going to talk about the Declaration, Lincoln's interpretation of the Declaration, and its resonance in our new millennium when we come back next hour. But I'm also thinking of the fact that – so you're 100% with Lincoln. Didn't do a thing wrong in terms of his authority, perhaps in terms Absolutely. of his judgment. Not a, not a centimeter over the line. No. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, well, <laughs> I'm giving you time here to think. Yeah. That that's a lot of centimeters. Well, you, you, uh, recognizing that, that a man who was commander-in-chief in, in, in a desperate war, which was fought, uh, the, the margins of victory were very, very narrow. And those people who think that the North simply overwhelmed the South 
just don't know their history. When we come back, we'll make sure that this audience knows its history, knows its declaration, knows its Lincoln, and we'll do so through the offices of Professor Harry Jaffa, one of the country's leading experts on both Lincoln and the Civil War, and of course, the Declaration. When we return to the special 4th of July edition of The Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America, as we conclude this second hour of the special 4th of July Day edition of The Hugh Hewitt Show. My guest, Professor Harry Jaffa, expert on the Declaration of Independence, expert on Lincoln, expert on the United States and the theory that undergirds it. Uh, Professor, next hour we're going to talk about modern America and uh, its embrace or, in fact, rejection of Declaration principles. But I'd like to ask before we go there, the the second inaugural, which I have not read and and will not read um, this hour, what place does that have in understanding Lincoln and the Declaration and the Gettysburg Address? Well, it would be impossible to exaggerate its importance. It was, I can't say that it was a greater speech than the Gettysburg Address. I can't say that anything, but it certainly was Lincoln at the peak of his his, uh, philosophic, theological, and political powers. Uh, It was most of all a uh, a statement that the Civil War was a punishment for the sin of slavery and that North and South were equally uh, subject to to uh, punishment for that. Does it rebuke those who would make common cause with sin for a time in order to achieve a greater end? Because if, in fact, it's a punishment, then that means the framing, the Constitution, was misconceived, doesn't it? No, uh, I think that the the Constitution certainly represented uh, a com- involved a compromise, but it involved a rational compromise because any alternative, if the Constitution had not had these compromises with slavery, it would not have been ratified. Had it not been ratified, another constitutional arrangement, which would have been much more favorable to sla- slavery, would have taken place. So. From that point of view, I would say the founders are not to be punished, but are not to be held accountable. But Lincoln quoted the, the, both the Old and the New Testament. Uh, Woe unto the world because of offenses. It must needs be that the offenses come, but woe unto that man by whom the offense cometh, you see. And Lincoln afterwards said he thought that this reflected as much on him personally as upon anyone else. Uh, but he said, still we must say that the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Uh, in other words, the founding fathers said he himself did everything they could, but it was not enough. Uh, but the, the scripture says that uh, woe unto the world by whom the offense cometh. That seems to be the, that's what the Bible teaches, and that seems to be the experience of mankind. When we come back next hour, we're going to talk with Professor Jaffa about the Declaration, about the Gettysburg Address, and about where America is now in the new millennium relative to those documents and the injunctions that they laid down so many years ago. Don't go anywhere, America. You're listening to the special 4th of July edition of this, The Hugh Hewitt Show. Morning, glory, America, and a great, great 4th of July greeting to you. This is Hugh Hewitt, the voice of reason in the West. I'm so glad that wherever you are going on this the great holiday that celebrates the birth of this wonderful country, that you are listening to this, The Hugh Hewitt Show. 
It has been my tradition throughout my broadcast career to begin every hour that I'm on the air on the 4th of July with a reading of the Declaration of Independence, which I will shortly begin and read all the way through. And at the bottom of the hour, I will also be reading the Gettysburg Address, which reinvigorated the commitment of the country to the Declaration's principles. And in between, I'll be talking with one of the foremost authorities ever, and certainly the go-to fellow on Lincoln and the Declaration today, Professor Harry Jaffa. But first, as is appropriate on this great day, the Declaration of Independence. In Congress, July 4, 1776, the unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter to abolish it, and to institute new government, laying its foundations on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence, indeed, will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And accordingly, all experience has shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations, pursuing invariably the same object, evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty, to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies, and such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government. The history of the present King of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. He has refused his assent to laws, the most wholesome and necessary for the public good. He has forbidden his governors to pass laws of immediate and pressing importance, unless suspended in their operation till his assent should be obtained. And when so suspended, he has utterly neglected to attend to them. He has refused to pass other laws for the accommodation of large districts of people, unless those people would relinquish the right of representation in the legislature, a right inestimable to them and formidable to tyrants only. He has called together legislative bodies at places unusual, uncomfortable, and distant from the depository of their public records, for the sole purpose of fatiguing them into compliance with his measures. He has dissolved representative houses repeatedly for opposing with manly firmness his invasions on the rights of the people. He has refused for a long time after such dissolutions to cause others be elected, whereby the legislative powers incapable of annihilation have returned to the people at large for their exercise the state remaining in the meantime exposed to all the dangers of invasion from without and convulsions within. He has endeavored to prevent the population of these states for that purpose, obstructing the laws of naturalization of foreigners, refusing to pass others to encourage their migrations hither, and raising the condition of new appropriations of lands. He has obstructed the administration of justice by refusing his assent to laws for establishing judiciary powers. 
He has made judges dependent on his will alone for the tenure of their offices and the amount and payment of their salaries. He has erected a multitude of new offices and sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people and eat out their substance. He has kept among us in times of peace standing armies without the consent of our legislatures. He has effected to render the military independent of and superior to the civil power. He has combined with others to subject us to a jurisdiction foreign to our Constitution and unacknowledged by our laws, giving his assent to their acts of pretended legislation, for quartering large bodies of armed troops upon us, for protecting them by mock trial from punishment for any murders which they should commit on the inhabitants of these states, for cutting off our trade with all parts of the world, for imposing taxes on us without our consent, for depriving us in many cases of the benefits of trial by jury, for transporting us beyond seas to be tried for pretended offenses, for abolishing the free system of laws in a neighboring province, establishing them in an arbitrary government, and enlarging its boundaries so as to render it at once an example and fit instrument for introducing the same absolute rule into these colonies, for taking away our charters, abolishing our most valuable laws, and altering fundamentally the forms of our governments, for suspending our own legislatures and declaring themselves instead invested with power to legislate for us in all cases whatsoever. He has abdicated government here by declaring us out of his protection and waging war against us. He has plundered our seas, ravaged our coasts, burnt down our towns, and destroyed the lives of our people. He is at this time transporting large armies of foreign mercenaries to complete the works of death, desolation, and tyranny, already begun with circumstances of cruelty and perfidy scarcely paralleled in the most barbarous ages, and totally unworthy the head of a civilized nation. He has constrained our fellow citizens taken captive on high seas to bear arms against their country, to become the executioners of their friends and brethren, or to fall themselves by their hands. He has excited domestic insurrections among us and has endeavored to bring out the inhabitants of our frontiers, the merciless, Indian, the merciless Indian savages, whose known rule of warfare is undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. In every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. A prince whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. Nor have we been wanting in our attentions to our British brethren. We have warned them from time to time of attempts by their legislature to extend an unwarrantable jurisdiction over us. We have reminded them of the circumstances of our emigration and settlement here. We have appealed to their native justice and magnanimity, and we have conjured them by the ties of our common kindred to disavow the use, these usurpations, which would inevitably interrupt our connections and correspondence. They, too, have been deaf to the voice of justice and consanguinity, we must therefore acquiesce in the necessity which denounces our separation and holds them as we hold the rest of the mankind, enemies in war, in peace, friends. We therefore, the representatives of the United States of America in general Congress assembled, appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, do, in the name and by the authority of the good people of these colonies, solemnly punish, solemnly publish, and declare that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved, and that as free and independent states, they have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and do all other acts and things which independent states may have right do. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. 
and there follow 56 signatures on the Declaration of Independence, which we celebrate today. Professor Harry Jaffa, welcome to the program. Thank you. Uh, how significant was that declaration for human history? Well, I would say that the two uh, greatest events for human history in the history of the world was the Annunciation of the Unity of God on Mount Sinai and the uh, Declaration of the Unity of the Human Race in Philadelphia. The Declaration of the Unanimity of the Human Race. What do you mean by that? Well, the proposition that all men are created equal indicates that the human fa- that there is a human family uh, and all races and nations of mankind are part of that family, uh, that they are all the children of one God, uh, and the, the political character of the uh, human race as, as such is shown by the Declaration. The, the American people, in declaring their independence, did something which was unique in human history. In the first place, no political system or regime ever had a beginning in which the principles of government were announced as the basis for this particular regime. But it was also the case that that the that the uh, rights upon which they based their authority were rights which they they themselves declared that they shared with all men everywhere. When we come back, Professor Harry Jaffa, the country's leading expert on the Declaration and the men who penned it, is my guest on this, The Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. This is Hugh Hewitt on a special 4th of July edition. Happy 4th of July birthday to the country and to you. As you go about your celebrations this morning, it's the perfect place to begin. As my guest is Harry Jaffa. He is the Henry Salvatore Research Professor of Political Philosophy Emeritus at the Claremont McKenna College and the Claremont Graduate School. He's a distinguished fellow of the Claremont Institute for the Study of Statesmanship and Political Philosophy. He's the author of many, many books, including the two in front of me, which are classics of American political thought. Professor Jaffa is widely regarded as one of the preeminent political philosophers this nation has ever produced. His book, Crisis of the House Divided, is an introduction to the issues surrounding the Lincoln-Douglas debate and at the core of the Declaration of Independence. His recently issued A New Birth of Freedom continues that inquest into what it is that motivated our framers, our founders, and Lincoln as he protected the country and where we ought to go in the future. Any of these books and more are available at www.claremont.org. That is spelled C-L-A-R-E-M-O-N-T.org. Professor Jaffa, as we went to break, you were discussing the uniqueness of the Declaration. No one had ever before begun a political experiment by declaring those principles. Were those principles radical at the time they were enunciated by the delegates to the Philadelphia gathering. Well, they were radical in that they grounded the authority of the people in the laws of nature and of nature's God. And the laws of nature are older than any human laws since they result from the very being of the universe. So in that sense, they were very radical. But they were also radical in the sense that they represented something absolutely new in human experience, what was new in human experience was at the same time the oldest ground for, for, for morality and, and constitutional government. Uh, in the literature of American history, uh, it's very common to 
to emphasize the continuity between British constitutional development and the American constitution. And that there was a great deal of continuity is certainly the case. But there was also great novelty. Uh, for example, the constitution says that there shall never be any religious test for office. This was the first time in human history that there had been a government which was not based in one way or another upon a religious test. The British government was based upon a whole series of religious tests. You'll have to explain for our audience what a religious test is, Professor. Well, a profession of faith which is authorized by the government itself. And so you would be obliged to raise your hand and swear fealty to the Church of England in order to serve in most of the, the, the government offices of England at the time of the Declaration. Yes, and the Toleration Act of 1689 in England, which was a main feature of the Whig Revolution, which in a sense foreshadowed the American Revolution. This Toleration Act did not say that there was a natural right to religious liberty. There was no profession of belief in religious liberty. There were just different tests. I mean, the Quakers took one test, the Methodists took another test, the Presbyterians took another test. And they could all pass the same test, a kind of affirmative action. For, but not, not for the signers of the Declaration. N no, no. Now, what is the most important aspect of the Declaration for a newcomer to it? Most people have never read it. Most people absolutely have no idea what's in it. What's the mm. most important thing for them to understand about it after that opening paragraph, which you say represents a break in human history with its mm. sweeping Declaration of Equality? Well, the statement that all men are created equal, that they have certain uh, unalienable rights, that among these, now the Declaration says among, so the enumeration that follows is not exhaustive. Uh, and we can say very easily that among the rights which, uh, with which we are endowed by our Creator are the rights to freedom of speech, the free exercise of religion, freedom of the press. These are all natural rights. Uh, in the Bill of Rights, which is appended to the first ten amendments, particularly the First Amendment, which says that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of people peaceably to assemble and petition the government. These, these rights, which were never mentioned in the body of the Constitution, but they were not mentioned originally because they were assumed to be essential to the functioning of any free government. But they were encompassed in Jefferson's declaration among them. They certainly were. Now, when Jefferson sat down to write this, of course, the little brief history, Henry uh, Lighthorse Lee, Harry Lighthorse Lee of Virginia calls for the declaration. A committee is impaneled, I believe. Is it Franklin is the chair of that committee? Uh, he was certainly one of them, and John Adams and Jefferson and... Uh, there's a fourth member that I'm not sure. And they give the job to Jefferson in essence. Is that correct? Uh, yes. yes. And so Jeff draft as being the primary drafter. So does Jefferson set out to write a political tract, an indictment, or a sweeping declaration of philosophy? Well, the Virginia Constitution of 1770, the state constitution of Virginia, was adopted before the July 4th. And he had in front of him James George Mason's Declaration of Rights, which preceded the Virginia Constitution. So that that pattern was more or less established by Virginia before Jefferson went to Philadelphia. But he certainly seized upon it as uh, as a uh, 
as the basis for the everything that followed, you see. But was was the intention to rally the public via the rhetoric of the, the lengthy list of indictments, which I read, mm-hmm. or was it really to set down, we are going to govern according to these principles? There's no question that these principles were were the ones to which they gave their ultimate allegiance. Uh, apart from what we know were the compromises that came later, the compromises involving the institution of chattel slavery. One of the, you might say, paradoxes, but also in a sense almost the genius of the American founding, is that it confronted the issue of slavery uh, by denouncing everything that could possibly justify slavery. At the same time, the people who made our government at the beginning were unable to change everything to fit the pattern of the principles. But people are so cynical today, Professor Jaffa, that whatever politicians say and elected officials is immediately discounted and run through the interpretive mill. And you're making the argument that they intended to be believed when they wrote this down. They were not merely setting the stage for armed no. rebellion. Uh, well, they were certainly setting the stage for rebellion. But not merely. Uh, well, remember, the declaration was issued after the war had been going on for a whole year. And uh, the year before, on July 6th, in other words, 365 days minus two before the declaration, there was a declaration for the causes of taking up arms. It's, uh, it's causes of justification. So they already had a statement of principles uh, which, which preceded the declaration which, and which foreshadowed it. But this makes their political theory complete. Uh, well, in a sense, it is complete. In, in what is it, less than 200 words, you've got a, a synthesis, you might say, of all the principles of legitimate government. When we come back with Professor Harry Jaffa, I will read for you the second iteration of those principles in American history that is most well-known, the Gettysburg Address, and we will continue our conversation. On this, the 4th of July, about the founding of the country and its defense in the middle of the great civil war that followed when we return to this, the 4th of July edition of The Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. This is Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening on this 4th of July, and a happy 4th of July to all of you. If you're in your cars and driving somewhere to celebrate, keep in mind this is the birthday of the country in which we live and for which we are grateful. It was once involved at the precipice of destruction, the Civil War, and in the middle of that there came the great leadership of Abraham Lincoln. Relying upon the Declaration of Independence, he went to dedicate a war memorial, a cemetery at Gettysburg. Those words reinvigorated the commitment to the Declaration, and they are thus. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that the nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us, the living, rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. 
It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave their last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. That speech, if I recall, Professor Jaffa was delivered on the 4th of July. No, November 19th. November 19th. Oh, the battle was on the 4th of July, of course. I'm sorry. The battle was on the 4th of July. My wife's birthday, too, so I can never forget it. Oh, well, that's easy, then. You've got that built in. What is Lincoln doing? I know people know that because of its high phrases, its beautiful language. What's he doing vis-a-vis the Declaration of Independence? Well, let's begin with the first words, four score and seven years. Uh, One of the main issues between him and Douglas in the Lincoln-Douglas debates, which continued on into 59 and 60 as well, was whether or not we exist as a nation by virtue of the Constitution. That's what Douglas said. Uh, Only by virtue of the Constitution. Lincoln insisted, no, we we exist as a nation in virtue of the Declaration of Independence. So fourscore and seven years is designed to, to reaffirm 1776. So that was, you might say, Lincoln's last word in the debate with Douglas. Oh, interesting. And so by declaring that, though, what is the import of such declaration? Well, in 1857, uh, the Supreme Court delivered a decision known as the the case of Dred Scott. Uh, That decision was one of the most uh, destructive acts by any person or group in all human history. Uh, The uh, Chief Justice, in his opinion, said that according to the Founding Fathers, Negroes, meaning free or slave, were so far inferior that they had no rights which white men were bound to respect. And as evidence for that statement, he said that the proposition that all men are created equal did not include Negroes, you see. The first time ever that that proposition had been made, according to your uh, your argument in the crisis of the House divided, or yeah. actually Lincoln's argument. In no, no, Lincoln said that no one had ever said that right before, uh, and I think he was literally correct. By the way, in my new book, I have made a great deal of something which no other writer has, and that is that Tawney himself, the in, Chief Justice, Chief Justice, as an attorney in eighteen eighteen had made a statement uh, in the in the case of one Jacob Gruber, who was a Methodist minister who made an, uh, an anti-slavery speech in Frederick, Maryland, before an audience which had included 400 slaves. And so he was accused of sedition and tried under that law. And his attorney was Roger Twenty, uh, who, in making his defense, said that he was not only speaking for his client, but for himself, in saying that his client had every right to denounce slavery and that we had an obligation as a nation to live up to the principles of the Declaration of Independence. When we come back, we're going to return to those principles of the Declaration of Independence, especially what it meant to say that all men are created equal. At that time in 1776, on this, the day that we are celebrating, the 4th of July, the birthday of the United States of America, we'll return for more conversation with Professor Harry Jaffa of the Claremont Institute. 
You can order his books at www.claremont.org, and you can continue to listen to this, The Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening on this, the special edition of The Hugh Hewitt Show on the 4th of July. My guest, it's a great honor to have him, Harry Jaffa. He's the Henry Salvatore Research Professor of Political Philosophy Emeritus at Claremont McKenna College in Claremont, California. He's also a distinguished fellow of the Claremont Institute for the Study of Statesmanship and Political Philosophy. For two generations, his works on the founding of this country and on the Declaration of Independence and on Lincoln and his debate about how the country should evolve in the aftermath of the Red Scott decision have guided students of political philosophy across this country. We were talking about Lincoln as we went to break and about Tawny and the Dred Scott decision. Mm-hmm. Professor, continue your conversation on that. Well, <clears throat> Tawny in, in 1818 held the views which were identical to those of Abraham Lincoln in 1857, and yet he said that opinion of the Negroes in, this, in the earlier period had been completely unfavorable and that they had never been recognized as human beings in the sense of all men are created equal. So when, in 50, when he said this in 1857, Tony was lying because he himself was an example of the opinion that he said didn't exist. Now let me, let me ask you just a political philosophy question. Statesmen are allowed to lie, are they not? Well, <laughs> uh, it'd be pretty hard to stop them. But, but I don't think anybody is, is allowed to lie. Oh, doesn't Socrates encourage lying when it's necessary to lie? He lies throughout his decision to, well, to die, doesn't he? But what's, what was that? When he agrees to stay, he's, he's in effect lying that he's done wrong because he hadn't done any wrong, but he's agreeing to be executed for doing wrong. Or to, Who so, are you talking about? Uh, Socrates. Oh, okay. I didn't hear that. Oh, I'm sorry. Reference. The headphone. So I'm saying statesmen are allowed to lie. Indeed, they're encouraged to when it's for the good of everyone. And Tawny thought he was doing... The right thing, didn't he? Yeah, well, he was doing a very evil thing. He fact. was, but did he think it was evil at the time? I think that that he uh, his his political sympathies were with the southern states. Even in the Dred Scott decision itself, he said that if the Declaration were written today, meaning in 1857, if we would recognize that the that Negroes were part of the human family, which meant that he recognized now as well as before that they were. Why was he lying about this? Because he was trying to bolster the Southern cause in the impending elections of 1860. 1857 was one year after 1856. In that year, the, uh, the Buchanan, the Democratic candidate, who was a notorious, uh, what's the word, uh, the... Uh, a man, a northern man with southern principles. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> Doughface. Uh, he had been elected, but he was with a minority of the popular vote, and it was clear that if the Republicans and the Americans, so the, the remnants of the Whig Party, uh, if they were to be combined in 1860, a Republican would be elected president. So Tony devised a formula for making the demands of the Republican Party unconstitutional. Uh, and he, the, the conclusion that he reached in the Dred Scott decision was that Congress, the only power that Congress had over slavery in the territories was the power coupled with the duty of protecting the slave owner in his rights. You see. And he puts us on a course to civil war with that decision, doesn't well, he? Well, he then, the South could say the, the, 
the Constitution says because the Chief Justice is the authority, and he says that 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 there's no power uh, under the Constitution in preventing the spread of slavery. In fact, the federal government has to support slave owners when they go into any United States territories. You must understand that the Civil War broke over the territorial question. Uh, after the Mexican War, the United States uh, acquired what was actually 60% of the land area of Mexico included. It expanded the United States by 40%. Uh, all the, the te- Texas had been recently annexed. You take Texas, California. California came in as a state in 1850, but the rest of that territory, which included what is today uh, Arizona, New Mexico, Nevada, mm-hmm. Wyoming, Colorado, all these were, were states uh, which were... Uh, Coming, they were in the future. See, the two territories formed out of the Mexican conquest were Utah and New Mexico, but Utah and New Mexico were uh, uh, resulted in five or six states. So, what would the future character of the union be? Would there be a majority or large, or three fourths majority of of free states or a three fourths majority of slave states? And uh, Tawney was attempting to guarantee that it would be a majority of slaves. Right. Regardless of where the population lived and whether or not the Northerners would have a, a majority in the House of Representatives, it was his intent to secure the Senate. It was his intent to prevent the Republicans capturing the presidency uh, in 1860. And what good does the Declaration of Independence do Lincoln in the course of his debate over that policy and that decision with Stephen Douglas, who contended with him for the Senate job in Illinois? Well, Lincoln had to argue, as the whole anti-slavery coalition argued, that slavery itself was both impolitic and unjust. Uh, This was a very difficult thing to do because, apart from the opinion in the North as well as in the South, was very unfavorable to the rights of Negroes. Uh, The only way in which the expansion of slavery could be prevented was by convincing a majority in the free states, who would constitute a majority in the Electoral College, that that slavery was wrong. He had to do this without arguing for anything in behalf of Negro rights other than that they should not be slaves. Uh, Lincoln had to say repeatedly in 1858, I am not now and never have been in favor of making voters or jurors of Negroes or permitting them to marry with white people. Uh, the issue of miscegenation was a very powerful one. Uh, when we come back, Professor Jaffa, we have to answer the current critique of Lincoln and thus of the Declaration, that he didn't really mean it, that the that the framers of the Declaration did not really mean that all men were created equal, that they meant all white men with property are created equal when they signed that statement. That's what Lerone Bennett said. That's exactly. <laughs> and when we come back, we'll talk about that with my guest, Professor Harry Jaffa, preeminent authority in the United States on these subjects, on this the 4th of July. Don't go anywhere, America. You're listening to an unusual show, but one that is perhaps the best that you could possibly listen to on this. The 4th of July, it is The Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. My guest today on this special 4th of July edition of The Hugh Hewitt Show is Abraham Lincoln and Thomas Jefferson, because I've been reading their work. In addition to that, Harry Jaffa, the author of most recently A New Birth of Freedom, Abraham Lincoln and the Coming of the Civil War, and not so long ago, but it appears to be long ago, Crisis of the House Divided, an Interpretation of the Issues in the Lincoln-Douglas Debate. Professor Jaffa, before we went to break, and as we close this hour, and we'll do some more next hour on this, 
Did Lincoln mean it? Did Jefferson mean it when they said all men are created equal? Yes. Now, lots now, of people but, say it was just, you know, posturing. Yep. In the first place, you have to be clear as to in what respect they held that all men are created equal. They were equal in their rights, their, the rights with which they were endowed by their creator, rights which were their, theirs under the laws of nature and of nature's God. Now, Jefferson, for example, admitted that there were great inequalities among white men. Uh, he also thought that maybe Negroes as such were inferior in intellect or uh, in rational and various abilities, even in athletic ability, because he thought that they were inferior in both body and mind. He speculated that that might be true. But he said that has nothing to do with their rights. He said, Sir Isaac Newton may be my superior uh, in every human respect, but that does not give him any right to control my person or my property. But Jefferson owned slaves. That comes the retort, no matter. Yes. And so his speculations seem to have trumped his ideology. Well, uh, let's put it this way. Jefferson, like all of us, was born into a world that he didn't make. Uh, and, uh, and, to, and, and the two uh, have ideas. And Jefferson's ideas did more in the course of time to change the world than probably any man that ever lived. But to expect him to have changed the world simply because he was born into it or that he had these ideas is simply to not understand the nature of human it's, experience. It's also often remarked that Lincoln, uh, yes, he led the, the country into civil war, but he did not do so with the intention of abolishing slavery, but of only preserving the Union, correct? No, not correct. Uh, it was but to preserve it in such a way as to make it worth preserving, which made to make preserve a Union in which slavery was in course of ultimate extinction. That phrase, in course of ultimate extinction, comes from his House Divided speech. When we come back next hour, we will continue this conversation about the intentions of Jefferson, the intention of Lincoln, the legacy of the founders of this country, which began even before July 4, 1776, but was certainly incorporated into that great declaration of the 13 United States of America. We'll begin next hour with a repeat of that reading and more from Professor Harry Jaffa. Here on the only source for the 4th of July show of this sort, that would be The Hugh Hewitt Show. That concludes today's episode of The Interview with Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening. Make sure you come back and check out all the other podcasts on the Salem Podcast Network. And remember to thank our sponsors, andrewandtodd.com. If you believe in long-form interviews like I do, then do your real estate transactions with Andrew Del Rey and Todd Avakian. I've known both men for a long time. AndrewandTodd.com. Go there, answer a couple of questions. They'll tell you what's best to do with your house or call them at 888-888-1172. You'll be glad you did and you'll be glad that you listened to the next episode of The Interview.